manipulate the society? Are you causing us to be divided? Are you trying to, you know, impact election results? Can we get that transparency? At least not saying we want any type of power, but can we have visibility? And the answer is absolutely not. Right, all in valleys, all in barrier. Everything is under there. Yeah, yeah. No intention whatsoever of disclosing and providing transparency of anything here. So that's really the pain point of people using Web two and Web three is trying to use decentralized ledgers and decentralized computation technologies to change that to give identity sovereignty back to every single individual. Right. So today. If I own a wallet address or a wallet on a public chain, look, the wallet's mine. You know, nobody can take that wallet away from me. And today, I use that wallet to log into multiple Web three platforms. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Hello and welcome back to Stop Island Taiwan, the podcast all about the latest news and trends involving stop and other innovation enterprise in Taiwan. I'm your host Yuli. Today we are having Wen Huang, CEO and co-founder of Xrex. Xrex, founded at 2018, is a neo fintech leveling the playing field by partnering with banks, regulators, and verified individuals to redefine banking together. Their blockchain-driven solution create a collective financial system that empower all to participate and contribute to the global economy. The team are including experts are cybersecurity, fintech, compliance, and the cryptocurrency. So, hello, Wen. Yo, Yoli. Thanks for having me.、Uh, my name is Wen Huang Yaowen. So recently, we hear a lot about Web3. In your point of view, do you mind like tell us what is Web3? Sure, and、uh, Web three is the next generation internet. It uses decentralized ledgers and computation technologies to enable identity sovereignty, data sovereignty, and financial sovereignty. Wow, it's a lot of cool wording, but <laughs> I'm still confused about like the related, like the real world. I mean, Web three is in contrast to Web two, right? And so we can talk about pain points in Web two. During the Web One era, and that's roughly from let's say 1995 to 2008, maybe.、Um, during that time, the industry together jointly created many big companies, and at the same time, we also created very important public infrastructure.、Uh, so we created standards like the TCP/IP, and on top of that,、um, SSL and TLS, HTTPS. And、um, HTML5, CSS, JavaScript, most of these infrastructure that's been created are open source, are free public standards, and a lot of them aren't patented, right? So、um, during the Web One phase, I think Web One was a very good time, and we got a lot of support from the user community and from societies. Because the value accrual went not only to the internet, you know, unicorns and big companies, but it also went to a lot of it. Also went to public infrastructure that benefited everybody. Web two liberated content creation during the Web two era. Platforms like Facebook and YouTube came up with the innovation that communication can be two way, right? And、um, everybody can be our own media. 
no need agency to be there. Yes, uh, it's not, you know, having a narrative, being able to distribute content is not the privilege of big publishers. Everybody can be our own media and we can publish our points of view, our content, our photos. So it's a great innovation. However, the value accrual went mostly to the big companies, right? So it's kind of like these big companies created art studios and galleries, right? And said, look, um, for all of you guys who are creators and artists uh, that are creating all sorts of things, come and use our studio, our workshop, right? We've got all the tools that you need and you can create content every single day within our studios using our tools for free and we'll help you attract a lot of people to look at your content, to look at all of the work that you create here, which is great. All of a sudden, then I can just walk in into a studio for free, having all the tools to create whatever I want to create, and then have all my friends and, and family and colleagues and fans to come and look at my work. That's basically Web 2, <laughs> which worked great for a while until everybody realized that all of these big studios that allowed us to create all these content and distribute the content became landlords, right? Because when we create these content within these platforms, we do not own anything, right? So we walk into the studio and we create a lot of work, but the studios fully own our work. And it didn't matter if you're the president of the United States, right? Uh, Mr. Trump. Um, so the minute that these platforms decide to make you disappear, right? And it doesn't matter for the past four years how much video or text, literature, whatever that you create on these platforms, they own it. You don't own anything. And when they say, well, look, for some reason, we have to suspend your account, you basically disappear from the internet. I use Trump as an example to say that, well, you know, he's a powerful person, but it doesn't matter. And that really is the problem of Web2. And for us, the average people, it's even more so. We have no power against these gigantic Web2 platforms who have all become our landlords. And we are just tenants in the internet world, right? We don't own data that we create. We don't own our work. We don't even own our identity. If you think about it, what's my identity? Well, okay, so um, I have a physical identity. I was born in Taiwan, so I have a Taiwanese passport. I travel with this passport. It gives me a lot of problems because like when I travel in Latin America, people uh, just can't understand if I'm Chinese or not, right? Because my passport says Taiwan, Republic yeah. of China. Uh, and what does that mean? Like, are you from China or are you from Taiwan? It's like, nobody understands, okay? How long can this identity last? I, I don't know, right? I don't know if things are going to change. Right. And there's going to be some political conflict or not. I don't know. But that's one identity that I have, which I don't feel I really own it because things could change. Right. And um, the other identity that I have is I've got a Twitter account, you know, and I've got Instagram and I got Facebook. But I don't own the identity. Right. If they want to take it away from me, they could. And it happens repeatedly. Uh, for example, when Facebook decided to change its name to Meta, there was an American lady. Her Instagram handle is called Metaverse. And very soon, her handle was taken away from her by Instagram just because they wanted that handle. And later, everybody protested, so they gave it back to her. But that goes to say that, well, look, I don't have any of these accounts. And if they decide to take all of these accounts away from me, then I don't have them anymore. So I can't really say these are my identity. 
Plus, whatever account I have on the internet so far, I've registered them with my Gmail. I don't own my Gmail, right? If Google decides to take that away from me, I lose all my internet identity. So in Web2, these trillion dollar companies have really become too powerful and they've become the true landlords of the internet. And we can see like this time, how powerful are they exactly? Not only are they our landlords, they own all of our identity and our data. They are also so powerful that it's pretty easy for them to impact a war or an election in any country. Yeah, like right? Twitter, YouTube, basically, yeah. in fact, uh, a lot of like real war scene. Yes. So for people familiar with the Taiwanese politics, let me ask you guys a question. So if right before our presidential election, Facebook and Google changes their algorithm, do you think that's going to impact our election results? Definitely. Right. So are we comfortable letting some engineers inside Google and Facebook impact our nation's presidential election results? Yes or no? Um, and also this time, uh, as soon as the Russian-Ukrainian war broke out, you know, then all eyes were, were on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, right? Are you going to be in Russian content or not? Because your attitude is totally going to impact this war, right? So that's how powerful Web2 companies are today. And that's how helpless we are against them. And I think this sentiment, this realization, he, in around 2020, with Netflix's release of the documentation describing specifically this sort of problem called the social dilemma. And they had uh, core engineers from Google and Facebook come out to say the issues with all these algorithms and the impact on society. And societies today are, you know, like uh, both in Taiwan and, and in the United States, you can see that society is very divided today. And is it in part caused by these Web2 algorithms? It could be, could not be. But the thing is, we have no control for sure, right? Is Google going to let us, you know, advise how they implement their ranking algorithm? Is Facebook going to take our advice? Absolutely not. We have no chance. But do we at least have transparency? Hey, Facebook and Google, can you at least open source your ranking algorithm and your, you know, Facebook feed algorithm so that we can have some transparency as to... Are you being fair? Are you trying to manipulate the society? Are you causing us to be divided? Are you trying to, you know, impact election results? Can we get that transparency at least? Not saying we want any type of power, but can we have visibility? And the answer is absolutely not, right? All in valleys, all in barrier. Everything is under there. Yeah, yeah. No intention whatsoever of disclosing and providing transparency of anything here. So that's really the pain point of people using Web2. And Web3 is trying to use decentralized ledgers and decentralized computation technologies to change that, to give identity sovereignty back to every single individual, right? So today, if I own a wallet address or a wallet on a public chain, look, the wallet's mine. You know, nobody can take that wallet away from me. And today I use that wallet to log into multiple Web3 platforms. And that is really something that I own as an individual that nobody can take away from me. So that's identity sovereignty. And with that also come financial sovereignty. What is financial sovereignty? So for example, our family, both on my dad's side and mom's side, uh, we grew up dirt poor in Taiwan. They grew up um, dirt poor and they barely had food to eat because uh, both of these families have fled to Taiwan from China right, with nothing. 
But on my mom's side, they were multi-generation, one of the most wealthy families in their state. So before they fled, they really tried hard to sell their real estate, sell all of their assets into gold bars. But they were not able to carry the gold bars to Taiwan. Right? They carried some booklets because yep. they 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 so stored fly, these. Yeah, yeah they and stored the gold. Is like a very emergency situation. Yeah, yeah. So they stored the gold at banks and stuff, and they had all these uh, bank notes, right? Gold notes. But of course, they weren't able to redeem any of that gold later on. So that's financial sovereignty, right? You spent your life. You spent, um, you know, because life is short, and a big part of our life is spent earning wealth. So we spent our limited lifespan to earn wealth. We pay taxes, and the money after tax that we earned by spending our precious time. Span, do we actually own that wealth or not? That's the question. And both of my family's situation, they they actually didn't own that wealth. They couldn't carry it with them. Not liking the new regime, fine, you know, flee the country. But sorry, can't carry your wealth with you. So you never really owned that wealth. You did not have financial sovereignty over that wealth. And in Taiwan. All right. So initially, everybody you know started to earn again from scratch, and they all had Taiwan dollars, which became nothing again. That's why we're using the new Taiwan dollar today, right? I think like ninety forty nine something. Yeah. Yeah, something like that, right? Where the original Taiwan dollar got hyperinflated and it was just worth nothing, and they started over again, right? So that's the second time already that my family had to go through <laughs> where they realized that okay, we actually do not have any financial sovereignty. So today, a lot of you probably you store your wealth in Taiwan, right? You put your money in new, the new Taiwan dollar and in real estate here. Now the question is, how safe is that? You actually don't know, right? If one day there is a conflict situation between Taiwan and China, are all of your wealth safe or not? And do you have the choice of carrying that wealth to somewhere else if you so choose to? And I guarantee you, at that time, it's still going to be extremely difficult because wealth is not really owned by you. Like your new Taiwan dollars, however much multi-millions, billions you have, uh, within you know uh, sitting in your banks, are going to all of a sudden become nothing if a critical war breaks out. So that you don't really own, and your real estate you can carry with you. Gold is still very hard. Right. So, um, but, but, in Web three, when you have a wallet which you own and nobody can take away from you, whose private key you can just memorize, then you can put in that wallet all types of valuable assets such as Bitcoin and Ethereum and uh, digital dollars such as USDC and USDT, and that's going to be yours, and it's easily transportable. So that's what we mean by financial sovereignty. And then finally, data sovereignty on uh, Web3 platforms. A lot of them, when you create content, you mint out NFT that you own, right? So when you create content, you create it on the chain in the format of an NFT that you possess, and you can decide to allow these grant privileges to these Web3 platforms and protocols to distribute your content and to make your content accessible to other readers and followers. But that privilege is granted by you and could also be voided by you. So it's the reverse of Web two, right? When you create content, you actually own that content. You can decide who has access to that content. You can decide to sell that content. Whatever you do, it is yours, and that's data sovereignty. So in one word,、um, 
we said that Web3 is the new next generation internet that uses decentralized technologies to enable identity sovereignty, data sovereignty, and financial sovereignty. It's one statement, but that's what it entails. It's also a very giant revolution in the world, and this must start from somewhere. So, in your point of view, if this wave or this revolution will come in soon for the entrepreneur, especially the Web three entrepreneur, where is the opportunity, or we say the current pain point? But now is for the Web three entrepreneur, at least for coming two years. If you are a young, talented engineer, you're so exciting about the revolution is coming. It's timing to do something. Ah,、uh, what is your suggestion for those entrepreneurs? For the young, talented entrepreneurs and and engineers, first of all, I envy you because you're young, right? It, it is a great time to be young, and you're right. I caught the keyword. It's a revolution. It definitely is a irreversible revolution, right? So Taiwan, when we started out, our elections were run by a delegation, 国大代表 The delegates elected the president, and there were not a lot of freedom of speech, right? You cannot talk freely. Now it's all changed, and I don't think there's a way for Taiwan to go back to that era, right? When a revolution happens and a new paradigm is adopted, and people are used to the freedom of speech, having freedom of speech, and used to being able to elect directly our president, you can't go back to the previous lifestyle. It's irreversible. You'd get so used to the new way of life, and you like it so much that you only understand the old ways by watching movies and documentaries. You're never going back. And yeah, once people have this kind of freedom, like it's just like air or water. Yes, people will like. Of course, we have.、That. Yes, and once you taste it, <laughs> there's no way to go back. Yeah, the same thing as Web three, right? Once you really experience, oh my god, I can own my own identity. I can own my own value and wealth, and I have ownership of my data. It's really hard to go back, and that is the opportunity. The opportunity is: look, if you're young, and especially I think if you're based in the Bay Area or Taiwan, first thing you think about is: oh my God, you know, houses in the Bay Area and in Taipei are super expensive, and it's gone up. I don't know how many times over the past one years, right? So while it was relatively Very easy for your last generation to buy a home or two homes or three homes in Taipei or in the Bay Area. It is going to be very difficult for you, and so this definitely makes us question generational justice, whether it's fair or not. But what you can do right now is leverage your advantage. You know, leverage opportunities that only you. Can understand that the last generation just will not understand and will inevitably fall behind you. And that, for example, one of them is the Web three opportunity. I think it's very easy for the younger generation to understand and to capture the Web three opportunity, right? To go west, but it would be very difficult for the older generation to understand. And that is your advantage. Because a lot of the older generation competitors, you know, they have a lot of resources. They're more established, you know, they have a lot more experiences than you. But they're not going to be able to compete with you in the Web three space. They grew up in the Web one era. They finally understood Web two,、uh, but versus a Web three native, they're going to be falling far, far behind. It's just really hard for them to understand, right? It's a new way of life. It's a new way to interact with the internet and interact with each other. They wouldn't understand 
the value, right? They'll understand it when everyone has understood it and are using it, but then the opportunity is gone already. Uh, is there any like specific field or like, uh, for example, like internet? We know in Web two, we do know uh, there's, um, for example, like cybersecurity, uh, there's uh, financial services, uh, there's uh, marketing tech. So in Web three, if I'm a young entrepreneur or engineers, I want to focus on certain field. Mm-hmm. Is there like certain field you think they should start? Yeah, and I think uh, there's two directions to go. One, which I am particularly interested in, is how can we use Web three to solve long-lasting real-world problems today and provide a 10x better experience, right? So we go and identify problems, painful problems that have not been solved over the past 20 years, and we're confident that Web three can provide a 10x better experience than current solutions. So this is one direction. The other direction is building basic infrastructure, building blocks for Web three. Because right now, you know, the entire space is expanding. There's a lot of infrastructure being built, and so um, you could just go and build native Web three components and infrastructure. Right. So two directions. Because uh, I'm older, I'm, I'm more interested in the first direction. And in the first direction, I feel that you know Web three's been around for some time, but it's really found two solid product market fits. One is exchanges, centralized and decentralized exchanges, because Web three has created digital assets that are valuable, and so that are investable, tradable, and that can be speculated. Right. So there will always be a need of tools to help people exchange and swap, trade and invest into Web three digital assets. So that has been a solid product market fit, and these exchanges. Also provide important gateways for people to get into Web three, right? So right now, if you have fiat currencies, right, if you have the U.S. dollar and you want to convert that into Web three money, Web three U.S. dollar, which is USDT and USDC, you could use our exchange XRX and do that conversion very easily, and you can convert back and forth. Then this provides a gateway for people to get into Web three. The other prior market fit is stablecoins. In emerging markets, there has always been a dollar shortage issue. We call dollar liquidity issue or dollar shortage, because most central banks in emerging markets are short of the U.S. dollar. Why? Because usually they have weaker exports. However, they heavily rely on imports. And Taiwan is the reverse of that, right? We've got TSMC and MediaTek and UMC and Acer, Asus. We got all these big brands that are super good at exporting. And so Taiwan, as a GDP, we're very, very good at earning U.S. dollars. And this has supplied our central bank with a surplus of U.S. dollars. Taiwan is no short of U.S. dollars. But for most emerging market economies, it's the reverse because of infrastructure issues. It's not easy to manufacture consumer electronics in these markets locally, so they rely on import, which means spending U.S. dollars. But then, if you spend a lot of U.S. dollars every year, how do you earn those U.S. dollars back? Well, you've got to be able to export, but their exports are usually weaker, and so then this creates a dollar shortage situation where. For cross-border merchants and entrepreneurs、uh, needing the U.S. dollar, it is always very, very difficult for them to convert local currency into the U.S. dollar, and it's also very difficult for them to own the U.S. dollar and use U.S. dollar. Why? Because 
the government has to implement forex control, right? If everybody is allowed to just hold in U.S. dollars, nobody would be holding local currency because these currencies are a lot weaker compared to the U.S. dollar. Let me give an example. Um, Argentina is the world 31st GDP, ranked 31st, right? Still big GDP. But from year 2000 until now, the Argentinian peso has depreciated against the U.S. dollar more than 13,000%. So the governments need to implement forex control. If not, everybody would just be holding U.S. dollars, right? But these such forex control are necessary, but the drawback is it's really hard for cross-border businesses and in, individuals and entrepreneurs to even have access to U.S. dollar. It's really hard to get a U.S. dollar bank account, right? You have to fly out of the country and you go into Hong Kong or Singapore or Dubai to get your U.S. dollar bank account. But without easy access to the U.S. dollar, you basically do not have access to the global financial market. Without access to the U.S. dollar, you can't buy American stocks. You're basically shut out from the entire global market. But through Web3 wallets and exchanges and payment tools such as us, Xrex, they can easily now use and access and um, exchange digital U.S. dollars in the form of Web3 currency, uh, USDT and USDC, which is one-to-one backed by actual US dollars or quasi-US dollars, such as short-term treasury bills. So these two are, I think, strong part of market fits that Web3 has found that solves real-world problems and provide a 10x better experience. The other direction, I would say, is building blockchains or DeFi protocols because Web3 is very rapidly expanding and there's so many components to be built. And so that would be a really good direction as well. Wow. So I think a lot of things we can do and we can join again immediately. So when we know um, you are a serious entrepreneur and your previous company was being acquired by the value-based cybersecurity company Proofpoints. So in your experience, what is the main difference between like working the Bay Area and the Taiwan? Yeah, so I was in the Bay Area a lot because my previous startup that I co-founded, Armorized Technologies, was acquired by Sunnyvale-based cybersecurity leader, Proofpoint. So I was spending a lot of time in the Bay Area, and I even ended up buying a home in Los Altos. I really enjoyed working in the Bay Area because of the talents you get to work with there. It's a high density and a broad spectrum of different types of tech talents um, that have all come to the Bay Area from all over the world, either because they were doing universities in the U.S. or that they came out to Silicon Valley to pursue career opportunities. Or at like Proofpoint, I met a lot of high caliber SEALs that were acquired by Proofpoint, right? So ended up working in Silicon Valley. So um, that aspect, I think, is so unique and I don't find any other tech hub close to the Bay Area, right? So for tech people, it is a rare experience, a luxury to be able to work in the Bay Area. But how about in Taiwan? I mean, you grow up, I'm born and raised here, yeah. and then go to the valley. So, but Taiwan have a lot of very good engineers, and I, I know you have some teams yeah. based in Taiwan. Yeah, we have an 80 people team in Taipei now with Xrex. I also really enjoy working in Taipei. Um, Taipei is a very nice city to live in. It's extremely safe, people are friendly, the food is great. I also feel that Taiwan 
is absolutely great for remote working professionals because it's a really nice lifestyle. Services are high quality and inexpensive. So when you're here, you're gonna feel everything's been taken care of. You have a great lifestyle, and you can really focus on your work if your work can be done from remote. So if you have that luxury, I recommend you come and check it out. Check out the food, the people, the nightlife, all the healthcare and personal services here. Um, we are coming up to the end of our time here on the podcast. So thank you for joining us to the chat today, Wen. Um, do you have any last word wanted to share to our audience? Uh, thank you for sitting through this podcast. If you can please share this podcast and the Startup Island brand to your friends, we'd all really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you again for turning into today's show. We will see you next week on Startup Island Taiwan.